Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 25. And Saul approved of his, that is Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw signs that, that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and had amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the, is the power of God that is called great. And they paid, paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with, with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that, that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent, sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of, of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that on anyone who, on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither the the part nor the lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pay to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of, of the Samaritans. Good morning, everybody. Well, we are starting looking today at Acts chapter 8, and just looking at those, the first half, as Emma's read. Um, but I want to uh, have a recap for the end of chapter 7 first. So we cast our minds back to what Keith was talking about, or who Keith was talking about last week. Because last week, Keith spoke about the long speech that, Simon, that, that Stephen had made uh, before he was killed by having stones thrown at him. And he was, he is, the first Christian martyr. You know, a martyr is somebody who dies for their faith, and Stephen was the first Christian martyr. There have been many, many, many since Stephen. 
Do you, do you know the day that we're supposed to be thinking specially about St. Stephen? Boxing Day. Boxing Day, if you remember good King Wenceslas who looked out on the Feast of Stephen. And December the 26th is the day that the church remembers Stephen. But he's good to remember Stephen as the first person to die because of his belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was one of the seven who'd been set aside to um, work in the church in Jerusalem. And he was described as a man full of God's grace and powers and did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. And he incurred the wrath of Jewish leaders and people who accused him of blasphemy. And he was brought before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, false accusations were made against him. And his long defense, which Keith shared with us last week, infuriated his listeners. So if we look at the end of chapter seven, starting at verse 54, let's remind ourselves what happened. So when they heard this, Stephen's speech, the Jews were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and they yelling at the tops of their voices, they rushed at him and they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Now, death by stoning, what a terrible, terrible, barbaric thing. And it still occurs in some places. But Stephen, at the end, knew where he was going. He was going to be with the Lord in glory, and the Lord was waiting for him. So what a wonderful future he had. Now, Chapter 8 in Acts is a very pivotal chapter. And we see things changing. Now, the first thing is that in my experience, death changes things. The death of a family member, the death of a close friend, the death of a colleague that you've worked with for a long time, it can change things as that person who's always been there isn't there anymore. Things change. And death disturbs. I think of it a bit like a pool of water. And if you throw a stone in that pool, ripples go out, don't they? And, you know, when somebody dies, it seems to me that 
ripples go out. And there are people that are close, people that are far away, but they're still affected by a death. Do you remember how the country was affected by the death of Princess Diana? You know, who knew her? Probably none of us. But, you know, when you think of that time, it was as if the whole country went into mourning for this lady. And perhaps we knew her, you know, through the newspapers and through the television. But people were very disturbed, weren't they? And death, any death, disturbs people. And Stephen's death was a catalyst for a change in the young church in Jerusalem because he was the first person to die. Previously, the elders, Peter and John, had gone before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, and they had been verbally rebuked. And once they were beaten... But, but that was sort of, if I can say, it was orderly. But what happened to Stephen was disorderly. It was mob rule. It was savaged. And when that happens, a certain barrier is crossed. Well, people have done it once, so they can start to do it again. And it seemed that the church was fair game for anyone to attack. And the church experienced persecution. Now, if we look at those first three verses in chapter 8, uh, Luke, who's writing this, Dr. Luke, um, puts, packs a lot into that. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned greatly for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So it's all put very succinctly. And it's as if it happened so suddenly. And with, the, with persecution and the fear of it, people moved out of Jerusalem and there was the scattering of the church. Well, now the church had been growing, growing in numbers, growing in unity, 3,000 believers at Pentecost, and many more added in the subsequent months. It was unity in fellowship, miracles of healing and deliverance were being carried on. The apostolic ministry was greatly revered, and they were forming structures. We saw how they had something in place to feed the widows. And then suddenly, it was scattered and fearful, and people left, and only the apostles were left in Jerusalem. So what was happening? What was happening to this young church? Was it a disaster, or was it design? Because the Bible tells us that God is building his church. It's his church. It's not our church. It's God's church. And he is building it in the way he wants to. From the beginning, we read how the church was intended to be universal, worldwide. Here at Freedom Church, we are a local church. 
but we are part of the worldwide church. We're part of a church in Chester. We're part of the church in Britain. And we're part of the church in the whole world. When I lived in London, in my church there, there were 27 nationalities. And that really brought it home to you. And when we prayed the Lord's Prayer, everyone prayed in their own language. And that was very good as well. In Genesis, if we go right back to the beginning, in Genesis 15 and verse 5, God spoke to Abraham and invited Abraham, look up at the heavens, count the stars, if indeed you can count them, so shall your offspring be. And Romans 4 tells us that Abraham is the father of all who believe, so he is our spiritual father. And then in Revelation 7 and verse 9, at the end of the Bible, there's this wonderful verse that John said, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. Now that's a wonderful picture. And if we know the Lord will be there as well. And God's plan was not for a Jewish church, although the message went to the Jews first. It's not for a Jerusalem church, but a worldwide, multicultural, multilingual, university, sorry, universe, universal church. Right, now in Matthew and verse 28, right at the end, the risen Lord Jesus met with his 11 disciples and he gave them what we, we know as the Great Commission. He said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So that commission is, wasn't just for them, but it's been passed on and it is for us as well. I was telling Keith this morning that I, I get a Christian newspaper and on the front there was a photo of this lovely lady called Maud. And Maud is 80 and she's from Northern Ireland, and she lives in Northern Ireland now. But she was converted as a young woman, and she always felt the desire to go abroad to serve the Lord. So in 1964, she became a midwife. And then she did missionary training, and she went out to the Congo. And she served in the Congo for many, many, many years serving the Lord, uh, delivering babies, doing all sorts of things, building schools and building hospitals, but most of all, preaching the word, sharing the word with the people there, because she wanted to fulfill the Great Commission. Now, for some of us, it's right to go abroad, but for other, others of us, you know, we can share it where we are and pray the Lord will bless so we're all called to be missionaries. Now, as we look through the book of Acts, 
we see the partial fulfillment of the growth of the church. Chapters 1 and 7 deal with Jerusalem. Now we're moving on from there. In chapters 8 and 9, we will be looking at the events in Judea and Samaria. And that was David's kingdom, when David was king. But in chapter 11, we're going even further than that. So just read it to you. Chapter 11 and verse 19. And Luke writes, Now those who'd been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks there also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them. A great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So we see that the gospel was not only going to the Jews, but it was reaching out and going to the Gentiles also. And the church in Acts, in Acts became a very, in Antioch, sorry, the church in Antioch became a very important church. So the eternal plan of God was being called out, was being fulfilled. Now, central to that plan was a most unlikely person. Seemed as if he was the persecutor in chief. Namely, the young man Saul, at whose feet the murderers of Stephen laid their clothes. Later, of course, he was known as Paul of Tarsus. And what, we, what can we say about him? That he was an evangelist. He was a theologian. He was a pastor. He was an author. But above all, he was a lover of Jesus. And God chooses the most unlikely people sometimes to do amazing things. In verse 3, it tells us um, that, and I notice in Emma's Bible, it says that uh, Paul ravaged the church, and that is the correct um, way of describing this. He ravaged the church, and the word means that he was like a wild animal, tearing and devouring its prey. It was fearsome. He put fear into people. You know, he was dragging off men and women, putting them into prison. Now, the older Paul, many years later, when he'd known the Lord for a long time, spoke about this. We read about three or four times how Paul gave his testimony. But this time he's speaking to King Agrippa. And this is what Paul said. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. And in my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. You know, and Saul had to come to terms with this, didn't he? 
And why did he do it? Why would a young man do that? Well, Saul described that himself. When he was speaking to the Philippians, he talked about his life. And as a baby, he was circumcised on the eighth day, as Jewish boys were. He was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. You see, Paul was zealous. He was zealous for God, and he thought that what he did was glorifying and pleasing God. Now today, we read of many people, very often young people, who are zealous for who they believe is God. And they do terrible things in the name of their religion. And we need to pray that God will reveal himself to them as he revealed himself to Paul. Now, said that there were more martyrs in the 20th century than any other time. So is the church still persecuted today? Yes, they are. Um, I, I suppose people only in the front will see this, but it's a map showing the persecuted people. I'll just read bits to you. North Korea, practicing faith is forbidden. Many Christians have defected and live undercover in China or make the dangerous journey to South Korea. But I have read that many, many people are imprisoned for their faith in North Korea itself. In Eritrea, evangelical Christ Christianity is forbidden. Persecution, forced conscription, and economic misery have driven many thousands into refugee camps in Ethiopia and the Sudan and beyond. In Syria, half the country's 1.4 million Christians have fled following years of conflict and persecution, and many now live in refugee camps. And you know, this, the, it's all very sad, but the, the, one of the tragic things is that the church is almost completely decimated in the area of the Mediterranean Basin, which, which from where it started. You know, Christians um, in um, North Africa were conquered um, by Islam very early in about the 8th century. But so many people from the area where the gospel was planted have moved as refugees. Very often in these places, Christians don't experience what happened to Paul. But what they do experience is being regarded as second-class citizens in their own country. If you live in, a in an area where you have identity cards and you have to fill in your identity and your, fill in your religion, and your religion is Christian in a country which is not Christian, then you will be treated as a second-class citizen. See, it's a sort of insidious denigration, really. You will not be able to work 
in certain jobs, your children will not be able to go to certain schools, and you will be regarded as unpatriotic, because in many uh, places, your um, religion and nationalism go together. When I was in London, as I was walking along one day, I saw a sign on the wall, and it said, to be an Indian is to be a Hindu. Now, we have many Indians in our church in London, and that would, you know, strike a, a bad feeling in the hearts of Christian Indians. Could persecution of Christians happen here in Britain? Well, I think it already is starting, actually. If we look at the, what the laws that the government has passed, say in the last 50 years, laws regarding matters of birth, and subsequently laws regarding marriage, and I believe that there will soon be a law for assisted dying, then you'll see that things like matters, these matters which are of basic to human life, isn't it? Birth, death, and marriage. And God's standards have just been ignored. For Christians who work in schools or um, in hospitals, medics, um, it must, they'll be in very difficult position. Uh, we're taught that all faiths are now equal and there is a need to be careful of what we say, and need to be politically correct. I was reading um, a nurse who offered a, a Bible to a patient and sang, um, the Lord is my shepherd with this elderly man, was reported and lost her job. And things like that are happening all the time. And we are having to live carefully if we're in some positions, and I think we'll probably have to live even more carefully. And we need to pray for one another about this. Now let's just move on in Acts and it tells us about Philip. It tells us at the beginning, those who'd been scattered preached the word wherever they went and that's God's way of moving the gospel around the world. They preached the word. They didn't hide. They didn't go into hiding. They preached the word. And Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. This is Philip the evangelist, not Philip the apostle. And like Stephen, after being appointed to distribute food to the widows, the apostles had laid their hands on Philip, they prayed over him, and he too knew the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. And one thing that we see happening in Acts is that the Holy Spirit is released to all Christians. It's, he's not just working in the lives of the apostles, that the Holy Spirit with his giftings and his empowerment is working through the church. And we see, and first of all in five, uh, Philip proclaimed the Christ there. That's the first thing he did. After that, that they saw miraculous signs that he did and paid close attention to what he said. You see, the preaching of the gospel, the signs following. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. And there was great joy in that city. 
So, and it's very reminiscent of the time of Jesus, isn't it? When the, he did things like that and there was left great joy. Well, who wants to spoil a city that's enjoying great joy? Well, only one person, and that's the enemy, Satan. The early church, as today, was susceptible to, into satanic attacks. Very often, it was people who come, came to give false teaching because they, only the Old Testament was available. The Jews understood it, but the Gentiles didn't. But just think that most of the New Testament that we read was in the process of being written then. And you know how fortunate we are. They had to wait for these letters to get to them, letters from Paul, Peter, James, and John, and that would give them guidance and encouragement. Um, but also, of course, they had Paul, they had Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, and if you've looked, at, usually there's a long list of names at the end of Paul's letters. They would have all been people uh, helping Christians, but what they didn't have was what we have, the New Testament, where we read about them. Now, let's just look at this man, Simon the sorcerer. He practiced sorcery, magic in the city, amazed everybody, boasted he was someone great, and everybody, high and low, gave him their attention and said, this man is the divine power known as the great power. Now, he didn't claim to be God, but he claimed to be, you know, God's second in command. And they followed him because he'd amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ, they saw the real thing. They saw that Simon was pseudo. And in Philip's teaching and the uh, laying on of hands and the miraculous, they saw the real thing and they turned and they were baptized. And so it, but it says here that Simon himself believed and was baptized. Now, was he really? Because it says he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles. But what it doesn't say is that he was amazed at relationship with Jesus. Because the greatest miracle of all is the new birth. When we are convicted of sin, when we know that conviction in our heart, and then we come to a realization that we have a savior, that Jesus is there, and we come to him in repentance and faith, and we know his forgiveness, and we know his love, and his kindness, and his relationship with him. That is the greatest miracle of all. And Simon, that, that wasn't mentioned in connection with him. You know, without Christ, we are in spiritual darkness. We are under the authority of Satan. Our sins have not been forgiven, and we are doomed to spend eternity without God. That's a paraphrase of what Paul preached. But Jesus wants us to be with him and his provision of salvation. Now, it tells us in verse 14 that the apostles heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God and they sent Peter and John to them. 
See, the apostles haven't given up oversight over the church. The apostles are still the ones in charge, and we see that. They're in Jerusalem. We see people going to Jerusalem to meet with them. We see that with Paul. That will happen with Paul. Accountability was important in the early church, and it is very important in the church today. We're called to be part of a body. We're not called to be rolling stones or loose cannon. We have a responsibility as Christians, and especially parents, to go where there is biblical teaching, prayerfulness, and the use of gifts, and to become part of a local church, a local church family, where we support and we submit to godly authority. Now, our leader here is Keith, and Keith is the sort of shepherd and concerned, prayerful for us. But Keith himself is a man under authority because Keith has people that he can go to and who come and visit us on occasions. It's a chain, you see. And we need to be in a church to know the fellowship of the church. Now, when it tells us that when the apostles heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God. They sent Peter and John, who prayed that they would receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit hadn't yet come upon any of them. They'd simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Peter and John placed their hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. Now, Simon noticed that these people that had their hands placed on them received the Holy Spirit. Something had happened to that, these people. Now, we don't know quite what. In some uh, parts of the Bible, we hear that people who've been prayed for in that way pray in tongues and prophesy. But, you know, when I prayed uh, to become a Christian and people prayed with me, what I didn't have any outward manifestation of tongues, but what I knew was that I was loved I can remember that great time in somebody's house and I danced around the room and I said, somebody loves me. And my sister, who wasn't there, but saw me afterwards, and and I said, somebody loves me. And I knew that something had happened inside me. And I knew that I was different. Uh, My mother knew I was different as soon as she saw me. And people that I worked with saw that I was different. One of them said, I don't like you, you've got religion. But that didn't matter at all. But you see, they saw the change, and he saw the change. And he thought that he could buy it with his money. Uh, He offered them money. And he wanted to be able to do that with people. And Peter answered, may your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right with God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you've said may happen to me. Now I have a little footnote in my Bible which said that Actually, Simon never turned to the Lord. That in the early church, 
he was regarded as the father of, of, of magicians and also that he was uh, somebody, a for, um, one of the first pe people to introduce the thought of Gnosticism, which a heresy which uh, plagued the church for ages. Now, what has really struck me in that was what Peter said. Your heart, you have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. And what qualifies us for ministry in the church? Is it tremendous biblical knowledge? Is it great personal charisma? Is it power? If you're a, if you're a, a musician, is it that you can play instruments to a very high standard? Well, they're all very useful things to have. But in the church, the qualification for service is a heart that's right with God. God is looking at the heart. And I was very much reminded of King David because Judea and Samaria were his kingdom in about 1000 BC. And when David was king, it wasn't because of his strength or power or experience, because he was the youngest of his brothers, but because of his heart. And the Lord said, the Lord looks at the outside. Sorry, people, man looks at the outside, but the Lord looks at the heart. And David was a man after the Lord's own heart and you know I felt when I think of my heart sometimes it can, can be hard sometimes a divided heart but the bit that God is looking at is the heart and how are our hearts towards God now I'm just going to finish by reading something from a newspaper I get a Christian newspaper. And this is about a martyr. And this um, martyr, a young man, he was called Mehdi Debadge. And he was martyred in 1990s. And he lived in Iran. Now, when we... Iran's in the news, isn't it, today, because of the, our, the ships... But it's very difficult there. The, 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 um, they're in an Islamic republic. Sharia law is the law of the land. And Muslim clerics are, are heads of state. And for many years, you know, for Christians, very few Christians. But then, suddenly, and it's, it's suddenly, the church began to grow. And a mission research organization uh, lists Iran as having the fastest growing evangelical church in the world. Now that's amazing, isn't it? That more Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the previous 1,300 years since Islam came to Iran. And the, the second reason for growth is persecution that as the church is persecuted, it's grown. And I want to read the words of this young man, Mehdi Dijab, who, 
defended himself before the Islamic courts prior to his death. And this has become a rallying cry for many Christians in Iran. And he said, I would rather have the whole world against me, but know that the almighty God is with me. Be called an apostate, but know that I have the approval of the God of glory. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him, and death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but I am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus my Lord and enter his kingdom sooner, the place where the elect of God enter to everlasting life. So I'm just going to leave you with that and just to pray at the end. And Lord, I just want to really thank you for your amazing word and your amazing grace that you have made us, that you have made me, your children. I thank you, Lord, for our saviour. And I pray, Lord, for us in this church that we would be bold in our witness, loving to one another and live for your glory. Amen.